Okay, so where, where we've been so far in Acts is um, really this, this progression or, or um, kind of increasing uh, hostility towards the, towards the Christians in Jerusalem. So when Jesus left uh, earth for heaven, when he ascended in the beginning of Acts, he told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And up to this point in the story, we're pretty much just in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters are the Jerusalem uh, outreach, witnessing of Jesus. But this creates a lot of tension between uh, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees, this group of people we meet with Jesus um, who confronted Jesus quite often and ultimately called for his crucifixion. This same group of people, um, just you know, days or months after Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead, are still frustrated by the message and the lingering teaching that's happening in the church and through the church. And so we see them confront John and Peter first, and they, they get uh, a warning and more or less threatened to, to stop talking about Jesus and told to stop talking about Jesus. And then we see the 12 apostles, all of them are, are brought to prison and then brought before this council. And then they are beaten for disobeying orders to not talk about Jesus. And, and then we see the third progression of hostility, persecution with this man named Stephen, who we met last week in chapter seven, uh, kind of six and seven. Stephen was a deacon in the church. He was a Greek Hellenist Jew. He was Jewish, but he, was, he had grown up in the Greek world, came back to Israel at some point. We don't know his background story much, but he was there in Jerusalem. And as he's uh, teaching people in his synagogue about Jesus, this creates this tension uh, with the Jewish leaders again. And this time he preaches a sermon where he topples a whole bunch of sacred cows that they are clinging to and looking for as their hope. And we, we, talk, we saw that last week that Stephen just confronts them with all the ways that they're missing the point. And this leads them to be enraged and ultimately lead him out of the city to kill him. So Stephen is now killed Last week, at the end of the chapter, last week he's killed, and we're picking up the story right where that leaves off today. So if you want to look with me uh, at the first four verses of Acts 8, and we'll, then we'll stop and talk about this a little bit. He says, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So here's what we see in the aftermath of Stephen's death. Stephen was killed by the council of elders. Um, they they um, didn't have a very strong case against him other than he was pointing them to their Messiah. And um, that, that enraged them, that, that they would be accused of not getting it. And so they, they crucify, not crucify, they stone Stephen, but they, they do so in a very similar fashion to how they crucified Jesus. And Stephen's death resembles Jesus's in, in a lot of ways, which we looked at 
last week. But as we continue the story, we're seeing that the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem is now at a, a fever pitch. It is, it is extremely hot in the city as far as the persecution goes, largely at the hands of a man named Saul, who we will meet more in chapter 9. Um, but Saul is approving of the ed- execution of Stephen. There's no uh, biblical evidence that he threw any of the stones at Stephen, but he was watching the coats and the cloaks of those who did, and he approved of it, and then becomes really a, a major player in the persecution of the church. They are, he's the one going from house to house, arresting men and women for believing in Jesus and bringing them uh, before the council. And, and so Saul is, is going to play a, a large role in the book of Acts, as, we, as you may know already. Uh, Saul becomes a man named Paul eventually. Um, but, but we see his, his hatred for the church at this point. We see his antagonism towards the believers. And so here they are. Here's what's happening. The gospel is going to get pushed out of Jerusalem in this, in this passage. And we're already seeing it in the first four verses. It's getting pushed out of Jerusalem because of persecution. So the persecution in the city makes it untenable for most of the Christians in that city to stay there. The only people who stay in Jerusalem, as far as the text tells us, are the 12 apostles. But everyone else, and remember, there are thousands of Christians in Jerusalem at this point in time, perhaps tens of thousands, that Luke, has, or that, uh, yeah, Luke, as he wrote the book of Acts, gives us these numbers earlier on, starts with you know, 3,000, and then it's up to 5,000, and pretty soon he loses count, and it's just a great multitude of people believing. So that massive group of people largely are, are scattered out of the city, they go to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And the reasons for that is because those, are, those would have been the more rural areas. Those would have been places with small towns, a uh, little bit less uh, tension than in the city of Jerusalem. Certainly more places to, to hide and to be kind of just living life and not being so threatened. And so the 12 stay in Jerusalem, and yet the rest of the church begins to spread out. And that's what we're seeing happen in this, this section. It, it says that there were men who buried Stephen. They, they mourned over him greatly. Um, but because of Saul ravaging the church and going house to house, most of the people in Jerusalem are spreading out, going to Samaria and Judea. But verse four is kind of the key verse in this. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So, So this is a crucial point. God is using this persecution in a way that through his sovereign hand and through his, his ability to take what is bad and turn it into what is good is moving the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and ultimately will be, we'll see to the ends of the earth, to the rest of the world. So God is using this persecution as a way to get his church comfortable in, in Jerusalem, to move out of Jerusalem, because remember, Jesus says, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, up to this point, they've not really left Jerusalem, not much. 
You could argue maybe Stephen's synagogue may have been in technically what is Judea, but for the most part, Judea and Samaria have been ignored and Jerusalem has been the epicenter of the church. And now, now this persecution happens and so the church begins to spread out. But they're not, this is, this is the key thing, they're not being silenced as they spread out. They are continuing to speak the word. They're continuing to preach the gospel. They're continuing to point people to Jesus even as they're being persecuted for that very thing. So this is an interesting thing that we're seeing that God uses this this state and this point in time, this persecution of the church to move the gospel outward, particularly to Judea and Samaria in this passage. But let me ask a question that we can think about. And it's one that just kind of came to me as I I studied this and worked on the sermon this week. It's it's that if God is using this persecution to, to bring his word further, and to move it into other lives, and to move it beyond just where it is, should we want to see persecution happen so that the same thing happens in our day? I I don't know that there's a perfect answer for this, but I think that there's a tension there. Um, Certainly, anecdotally at least, we know that the places around the world today where we live right now, the places that are under the most persecution are also the places that are growing the fastest in the church. They say, I don't know how, you know, how fully all of this is, is proven out, but I, I have read in places that Iran is actually the country with the fastest growing church at this moment in time. If that's true, that's amazing, right? We, I, I've heard, I've read, I've read articles that the predictions are, and again, predictions are hard to make, but they're predicting that in communist China, the church there will be larger than the church here by 2030. So is persecution good for the church? In one sense, yes. Should we seek persecution because of that? I think the answer is no. <laughs> I actually think the Bible gives us a clear teaching that we don't pursue persecution, but we prepare for it and we receive it when it comes. I think that's the tension. I don't think we should ask for persecution. I don't think we should be longing for that. I I am very grateful for where we live and for the freedoms we have. And I think that the, the Bible itself gives us instruction on how we should think through this. And one passage I came, came across this week was 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. And there Paul is writing to Timothy in a much more hostile environment than we live in, right? In the Roman Empire, uh, long before Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity and stopped the persecution of Christians in Rome, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says this in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. Okay, so Paul's saying pray for those who are in, in charge, right? The kings and those in high positions. But why pray for them? Here's, here's his answer. So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. So it seems that Paul's teaching there and instruction there is 
Timothy, we need to be praying for those who are in authority so that we as Christians, that's who he's writing to, the Christian church, so that we can lead peaceful and quiet lives that are godly and dignified in every way. It seems to me that that is the, 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 the desire that we should be asking for, and yet knowing at the same time that persecution and difficulties will come, and, and they will come in different contexts and different ways, and we should be prepared for that and get some you know, more mental and spiritual fortitude or grit to get ready for it if it comes in our generation or not, but we should be ready for whatever God may bring to us and yet not seek it out and desire it. There's that tension. So I, I think that that's the answer to this is that while God certainly uses persecution to bring his word to other places and to other people, we see that in the biblical text, we see that anecdotally in our own world, we see that through church history it seems very clear that God uses persecution for that purpose and for that good. And yet at the same time, we're told to pray for peaceful and quiet lives. So, so we have to hold both of those things in tension. And that's, that's what I think this text points us to, at least in part. So let's, let's look again at verse four, though, because I think that that's, I, I, there's some more that needs to be talked about here. So those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So those who were exiled out of or, or, or refugees out of Jerusalem, they're moving away from Jerusalem. They're escaping the persecution. They are going about preaching the word. Now, that is an amazing thing because that's the exact opposite of what the persecution is meant to make them do. The persecution is meant to silence them and yet they don't find themselves silenced. This whole plan backfires. And, and I think that the, the importance of preaching the word is something that we need to recognize is clearly here. That the, that the mode in which God reaches people is through people teaching his word. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, he was one of the great preachers in uh, Britain in the 20th century. Uh, and he wrote a classic book uh, called Preaching and Preachers. And in that book he starts with a bold statement. And that statement is this, that the work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. He continues saying that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching and it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church. And if it is the greatest and the most urgent need in the church, excuse me, it is obviously the greatest need in the world also. Now, Lloyd-Jones justifies this claim about preaching by pointing to this passage, this exact text we're in, and he says, in chapter 8, we are told great persecution arose in Jerusalem and how all the members of the church were scattered abroad except the apostles. What did they do? We are told in verse 4 and 5, therefore they went uh, that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. He says that does not mean preaching from a pulpit. Someone has suggested that it should be translated gossiping the word. But the chief desire and concern was to tell people about this word. 
So I think what Lloyd-Jones is pointing to here is he's not talking, they're not saying that people are preaching in the same way I'm preaching right now from behind this pulpit and in this context. But what they're doing is they are spreading the word. They are talking individually with people about the word of God. They are bringing God's word to bear in people's lives. Um, and and the, the word that is used here is they're preaching. And they're concerned that people hear this word. And so that's what's happening is the, the persecution of the church propels people out to preach God's word in places that have not heard it. And, and then this passage then focuses on a place that has been up to this point neglected with the gospel. And that is Samaria. So in chapter 8, verse 5, uh, we'll read 5 through 8, and then we'll, we'll talk about what we're seeing there. It says, Philip, now let me be clear here, just so we're on the same page. This is not the Philip who belongs to the 12 apostles. There's a Philip in that group too. This is a Philip who is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 6. He is one of the deacons uh, along with Stephen. So he's uh, another Hellenist Jew. He's another guy who grew up outside of Israel and came back at some point. So that's who we're talking about. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip is the one who goes down to Samaria This is what Jesus said his disciples would do, right? Be his witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Up to this point, as I've already mentioned, we've we've been in Jerusalem and maybe a little bit of Judea. But now the gospel of Jesus Christ is moving out and that is massively significant. Why is Samaria particularly significant? I came across a commentary from Kent Hughes, who was a pastor in Naperville, Illinois, for uh, Wheaton, I think, actually, Illinois, for many years. And he wrote this. He, he tells us, gives us some of the background on the Samaria issue. He says, History records intense animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews that had lasted hundreds of years. In 721 B.C., the Assyrians took the inhabitants of Israel, the northern kingdom, off to Assyria, where the Jews intermarried with the Assyrians and the Kuthites. In 587 BC, the people of the southern kingdom, Judah, were taken into Babylon. But in Babylon, there was no intermarriage. So when those Jews came back to their homes, they were unadulterated Jewish blood. But the inhabitants of the northern kingdom were not. So to the Jews, the Samaritans were a mongrel nation of half-breeds. The Jewish rabbis said at that time, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. So just sharing a meal with a Samaritan would have been seen in that day as eating eating pig, which we're happy to do, thankfully, by God's grace, but they couldn't because of the law. 
He says a popular prayer in those days said, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Well, okay. And you can be sure the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. So there was great animosity, right, between these two groups of people. There were, they, they came from similar lines, but there were differences in culture, differences in ethnicity even. And, and so there is a great deal of, of hatred even at times between these two groups of people. We do pick up on some of this in Jesus's ministry in John 4, where he goes to uh, the woman at the well, who was a woman from Samaria. And in, in their exchange, and their conversation, which we don't have time to look at today, you do see that there's some real differences in how they they think about things between Jews and, Gen- and, and Samaritans. And in one case, uh, the Samaritans had a different temple to worship God than the Jews. They, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of Moses, not really the full Old Testament scripture. There were a number of religious differences and also cultural and racial differences. And so the fact that the gospel is now leaving Jerusalem and going to Samaria where it is not only being received, but it's being joyfully received. And, and, being, and they're seeing the display of God's grace in their lives through healing them and through delivering them. This is showing us that, that outsiders, those outside of Jewish religious belief and ethnicity are welcomed in to the church. This is really the first movement of those who are not fully in the Jewish faith being welcomed to Christ. And that's why it is such a significant moment. And one thing that struck me as I read this passage in verse six, it says that the crowds in the city of Samaria with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. The crowds in Samaria are of one accord, which means that they are unified together in listening to Philip speak. Contrast that to those who were listening to Stephen in Jerusalem. They were not of one accord to listen to Stephen. They were of one accord to kill Stephen. It says in verse 57 of chapter 7, that they, the council of elders, stopped their ears and rushed together. That could be fr- translated by, from the Greek to the English. It could be translated one accord with him, towards him, right? This, is, this rushing together was a unified effort that they were going to kill this man. Meanwhile, in Samaria, this place that you would never expect to be receptive to a Jewish Messiah, are hearing the gospel preached and they are with one accord hearing it and receiving it. And it's an amazing moment. The contrast there is incredible. So let's, let's keep going because some more things happen here. We've got 9 through 13 to look at next. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his 
magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So so now we're seeing this guy. We meet this guy named Simon who... uh, was, was apparently a big deal in Samaria. He was a magician. I don't, we don't really get a concept of this too much in our context, but he was doing things that were impressive and, and proving his power and all of the stuff. It's like getting a lot of people's attention. And, and so the gospel comes in through Philip preaching the good news of the gospel of Christ. And Simon is amazed at what's happening because even at his greatest, he couldn't do the things that that Jesus was doing through his spirit in Samaria and through Philip. And so here you see this good news changing lives and the people of Samaria who who had been hoodwinked by this guy named Simon uh, are now rejecting the pagan magic that he was displaying for them and responding to to Jesus through belief and baptism. Now, we're also told here that Simon himself believed and was baptized. Now, that, that might be something to celebrate, but I think the text is actually going to take us in a different direction. So let's, not, let's hold our applause for Simon for a minute here because I think we're going to see something complicated in a little bit. But we're, we're seeing that the gospel is greater than the, the pagan magic that Simon was displaying. And that's that is just toppling over the kingdom of darkness there. Verse 14 through 17. Let's read this. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're seeing here that um, the church in Jerusalem gets word of Samaria's response to the gospel and sends uh, Peter and John, two of the 12 apostles, kind of the two head guys, the guys that play, play the biggest role in the story here, they send those two guys to Samaria to check things out um, and, and to make sure that everything is going well. As they do, as they come to Samaria, they lay their hands on the people and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So, so this is an interesting passage and it's led to some questions over the years about how to make sense of this. Why did the people not receive the Holy Spirit upon believing in Jesus? Why did the people in Samaria have to wait till the apostles showed up to receive the Holy Spirit? And there, there are a lot of views on this. And one of the more prominent ones today among particularly our Pentecostal brothers and sisters is that we need to have a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. That if, that if we receive Jesus, that's great, that saves us, but it's not enough. We need a second blessing. And that usually, in their context, would, would display, be displayed through the speaking of tongues. Um, that's not my view on this. And I think we need to recognize something unique here. 
And that is the time that it's happening. And secondly, the unique dimension of Samaria and Jerusalem and the the relationship that is there. Because I, I don't think that this passage is teaching us that we need to have a second blessing of the Spirit of God. I do believe that we see from this point on, for the most part, the Holy Spirit descends upon those who believe in Jesus. But this particular story does this kind of delayed uh, coming of the Spirit. And I think that what's happening here is that the Spirit of God was withheld from the Samaritans until the apostles came for a very specific reason and a crucial reason. And that reason is that so that Samaria and Jerusalem would be unified as one church. We need to understand the context of this I think we, we, we get lost, we lose it in the time that we, we live, right? We're just so far removed. But you, you can understand, knowing the animosity between these two groups of people, how easy it would have been for the church in Jerusalem to write off the church in Samaria and the church in Samaria to go, well, we're Christians too, but we're just Samaritan Christians. And, and you are uh, actually Jewish Christians. And so we're just gonna have two separate things, and that's not what's happening. The, the fact that the apostles come specifically to this moment and lay their hands on these Christians and the Holy Spirit descends upon these Christians at that point is so that the church in Jerusalem and Samaria would be unified together. This is not Jesus creating factions of his church. There is one church, one holy Catholic or, or worldwide, that's what the word Catholic means, worldwide church. That's what the Apostles' Creed affirms. That's what we would affirm as Christians. There is not a million different Christian churches. There is one church that is local and unique and has some distinctions and differences, but at the same time, we are unified under Jesus as his one true church. And that, I think, is what's happening in, in this story, is that Samaria is being brought in to the fold. This is to protect the Samaritans from being treated or considered as second-class Christians. Because if Peter and John are there, and Peter and John verify that this is happening in the apostolic age, right? This is a unique time in church history where the apostles are alive and they're working and they, are, they have some prominent roles to play. The fact that these guys are signing off on this and going, yes, this is legitimate, it's happened, then that brings it all together. It's, it's similar to what the uh, apostle Paul later on would write to the Ephesian church, and he talks about the, the issue of this, this wall of hostility that can still exist between Christians uh, from different places and different contexts. And, and I'm, um, all I'm going to read here is, is verse 3 of chapter 4 from Ephesians. He says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'll read verse 4 too for the fun of it. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So there we're seeing Paul's bringing that out in the Ephesian church context, which had a tension between 
those who were ethnically Jewish and those who were ethnically Gentile. And he's going, no, 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 we're all together. There's one Lord and there's one spirit and there's one baptism. There's one church. There's one body. We're in it together. And so we're seeing, I think, that display happening here. And I think that it's, it's prominently on display because of the, the tension that exists between Jerusalem and Samaria. Okay. Well, let's keep reading. We've got a little, little more to go, 18 through 25. This will be our last section to look at this morning. We're back to the Simon character here. So now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered him, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Peter and John head back to Jerusalem and while they do, they're stopping in all these little towns throughout Samaria and they're preaching the gospel. So, okay, let's talk about Simon for a bit here because this is, this is wild. Um, Simon sees the Holy Spirit come upon the people. They, he sees the correlation between the laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit coming upon the people there And so he approaches Peter and John and he says, hey, give me that power. I'm going to give you money. You give me that power so that anybody I do this to will get the Holy Spirit too. (laughs) And what Simon doesn't understand, which is clear in Simon Simon Peter's response, the other Simon in the story, Peter's response is to, to basically say, you don't get it at all. Like, I, I actually read this and it, commentators are totally divided on this. So some think that Simon was legitimately a believer as he believed and was baptized and that this was just a lapse in judgment and kind of a foolish moment, but he was a Christian. Others believe that the first response that he had to the gospel was not a genuine trust in Christ, that it was an, an outward expression of, of faith, but it wasn't a true inward belief. And I don't know that we have an answer for that. And I'm not going to come in swinging with my answer because that's beyond my pay grade. Okay, God, God will decide what happens to Simon here. This is his deal. Uh, however, from Peter's response, I, I lean towards Simon not being a believer in the first response because of how Peter takes it, where he goes. He says, may your silver perish with you. So there's an implication that Simon's going to perish. which is what happens to those who reject Christ. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He says you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. So 
you don't have anything to do with this. No part, no lot. That's, a, that's an Old Testament reference to having a portion of the promised land. And Peter applies that concept to salvation and says, you don't have a part in this thing because your heart's not right with God. So if his heart's not right before God, can we argue that he's a Christian? I don't know. And then 22, he's told to repent. Therefore, of your wickedness and pray to the Lord that your heart may be forgiven you. So he's told to turn away from his sin and turn to Jesus, which Christians are called to as well, right? It's not just like one time you become a Christian and you never have to repent again. So maybe that's not the best argument here. That could go either way. But then here's the thing he says in 23, for I see that you are in the gall or the bile of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. The bond of iniquity is another way of saying you are enslaved to your sin. Okay, so none of that indicates to me that Simon was truly a Christian in that moment. Even Simon's response is very lukewarm or tepid, just sort of blah, right? There's just nothing there. It's, he's told to repent and pray to God for forgiveness. And what does Simon say? He says to Peter, would you pray for me? You can pray for me, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. But he wasn't told to have Peter pray for him. He was told to pray to the Lord himself. So again, we don't really get, I don't really get this impression that Simon gets it. But again, I'm going to reserve that judgment for someone else to deal with because that's not for me to, to call it. I'm not calling those shots. But this is where, this is where it seems to point. But what is the overarching issue here? Well, the overarching issue isn't for us to debate whether Simon was a Christian or not a Christian in this moment. It's really to see the the heart behind the question, can you give me this power? There is a point in which this man, Simon, believes wrongly, clearly wrongly, that he can buy the power of God, that he can buy the grace of God. That, the, that salvation somehow is offered at a price. It's interesting that uh, in future times from this story, uh, in the Middle Ages in particularly, um, after Constantine turns the, the Roman Empire kind of Christianized, um, there, there started to be a practice that carried on really up until the Reformation and probably beyond the Reformation Uh, of people purchasing favors from the church, like using their money to buy themselves into positions like, I want to be a bishop, so I'll just give this guy money and become a bishop, that kind of thing. That that practice became known as simony because of this story. (laughs) That the idea of, of getting something, getting a favor from the church or getting a position in the church was known by using your money to buy your way into it was known as simony. It's an evil thing. It's one of the things that led the reformers in the 1500s to to call the church to change. Because we cannot buy grace. By definition, grace is a free gift of God through Jesus Christ. The word grace is one of the words that in the Greek that means a gift. That's what it is. Grace is given. It is received freely. It is given freely. And we 
too, while we, we are probably not pulling out our wallets to, to try to earn something from God, we're not trying to bribe somebody to do something for us in that regard. We, we do this, though. We do. We try and earn what God freely gives. We try and earn it through our good behaviors, our good works, our efforts, and we tr- convince ourselves that because I'm doing the right things, God is going to give me what I need. The reality is, is that God gives us what we need despite the fact that we do everything wrong most of the time. We are not right with God because of what we do. God makes us right with him through faith in Jesus and then begins to change us so that we do the the things that are right. This is the call of the, the New Testament, that we do not earn or deserve the gospel of grace. And the reason we don't earn it or deserve it is because Jesus offers it freely. This truth was pointed to us even in the Old Testament. And uh, there's a passage that has always drawn me in. It's Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. And here's what Isaiah writes. This is long before Jesus came to earth and, and lived and died and rose, but it points us to what he would do and what we would respond with. He says, come, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that the grace of God is not bought with money. It is received. It is we, we go to him for grace We go to him for the free gifts he offers us. It is given to the humble. And then Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The only thing we do to come for salvation and changed lives is we come to Jesus. We go to him and we receive from him his rest and his peace. And I think that as we prepare ourselves this week for Thanksgiving and the day that that represents in our, in our, uh, in our lives, we should, pre- we should pivot our hearts today to be most thankful for Jesus, what he's done for us, how he has saved us, how he has brought us to himself apart from anything we've done or accomplished. We can be thankful for all the other things. Those are all just, that's icing on the cake. But, but the, for Christians, the, the primary thing we are called to be thankful for is the Lord and what he's done to save us. So let's do that this week. Let's do that every week, but especially this week. And I'll pray for us as we transition. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for giving us uh, the grace that is so undeserved and so unearned, 
And, and we pray, God, that you would help us now as we respond in song, as we respond in partaking of the Lord's Supper at, at the tables. We pray that you would help us to come to you knowing that we, we do not have to pay you anything. We do not have to give you anything because you give all to us. You are the one who is the giver and we are the recipients. We are the humble and lowly and we need your help today. So we pray for, for that as we, as we respond to you this morning. Uh, pray that you would use um, our, our um, that you would receive our, our worship and that you would be glorified in it. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're gonna take some time to sing together in just a moment.